the individual investor show. You bought it all, don't you? Here, one thing, they all need money. Now let's see if they're brave enough to earn it. Hello, and welcome to the Individual Investor Show. My name is Jennifer Shear, your host for this evening. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you all had a wonderful week. So with tax season just around the corner, you may have retirement investing on the brain. At least I do. But how can we be sure we are making the right moves when it comes to building our retirement portfolio? And for those who are already in retirement, how can you safeguard your assets in a volatile market and economy? Tonight's event is the Individual Investor Show, What to Do When the Retirement Party Ends. So for this week's Individual Investor Show, Charles Rotblatt chats with retirement researcher Wade Fow on the various experiences and decisions retirees commonly face when approaching this new life stage. Their discussion highlights the pros and the cons of different withdrawal and allocation strategies, as well as how to factor in the worst case scenarios for your early years of retirement to ensure your portfolio lacks. In the second portion of the broadcast, we talk with Matt Bachkowski about his recent article on intermediate bond funds. We delve into the benefits and risks of fixed income, as well as help you decide if bonds might be a good fit in your retirement portfolio. You won't want to miss out on these two thought-provoking discussions covering some key topics on retirement planning. Before we jump in, I do want to preface tonight's presentation by reminding our viewers that AAII is a nonprofit educational group and is not a financial advisor, and thus is not able to give personal advice. Every investor is different. That's why our goal with each broadcast and article is to educate you on how to make better financial decisions. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy our presentation. Thanks for joining us. Uh, in your book, you had written about uh, the concept of the funded ratio. Could you explain what that is? Uh, sure, absolutely. And increasingly, I'm viewing the funded ratio as a really straightforward approach to thinking about retirement planning and whether you're ready for retirement on a financial, have that financial footing in place. And it's simply a matter of comparing your assets to your liabilities. Do you have enough assets to fund your liabilities? Where liabilities are all your spending goals, your, your basic retirement expenses, your projected taxes, discretionary spending goals you may have whether or not you want to explicitly incorporate a legacy goal or just think of legacy as anything left over at the end. And also liquidity, having reserves not earmarked for other expenses that are available for things like a long-term care event and so forth. And so those are the liabilities you're trying to fund. And it's a lot of those are gonna be present values of future like spending streams or of the, the legacy goal at the end and so forth. And then you compare that to your assets. And that's just the, the current, like how much do you have in your investment accounts? But it's also other income flows. For example, you're gonna wanna calculate the present value of the social security benefits. And that could even be a, a million dollars or more for some high earning couples, but you're looking at different assets you have, home equity and, and so forth. And then present value of all your assets compared to the present value of all your liabilities using and this is where to manage longevity and market risk. So using some sort of conservative planning age, whether it's 95 or 100 or something like that, some age that you're unlikely to outlive to manage longevity risk. And then a conservative interest rate, that's the discount rate that you use. I usually like to think of it in terms of, let's just see if your plan would work if you had everything in tips, like treasury inflation protected securities, and use that sort of real interest rate with all the different real spending flows or income flows uh, and to effectively see that if your assets grew with a bond interest rate, 
do you have enough assets to meet your liabilities? And if you're funded, if your assets exceed your liabilities, then that suggests you're in pretty good shape that you don't even need to take market risk. But then that can help you assess, okay, now you can design your investment strategy. And that might speak to how much risk you want to take in terms of if it's not even necessary to take risk, that could give you a different answer about your asset allocation versus if you are underfunded and decide, well, I'm underfunded, but that's because I'm assuming I'm only earning a bond interest rate. If I invested in the stock market, I'm pretty comfortable I could beat a bond interest rate. That might speak to really your attitude then about how you think in terms of building that investment portfolio. But that funded ratio is a quick and easy, simple solution. Do I have enough assets to meet my retirement goals? And I think that can really help people to start think about whether they're financially prepared for retirement. Interesting. Uh, and some of the approaches you mentioned in your book, um, Retirement Planning Guidebook, um, will be more difficult once someone incurs cognitive decline. Uh, any suggestions on how investors can plan for this risk or even when they should start considering uh, getting outside assistance to help with their management of their portfolios? Mm -hmm. Yeah, cognitive decline can impact people in, in a couple of different ways. It's And part of it may be if you're in a household where one person runs the family finances, you want to be making sure that you're setting in place the ability for the other spouse or other in, uh, individual partner who may not be as financially sophisticated if they have to take over the reins uh, to be able to facilitate that or to otherwise just have the finances simplified as much as possible or to work with a, a trusted financial professional or maybe just have that relationship, making sure that both members of that couple are comfortable working with that individual and so forth. But then beyond that, to help facilitate the possibility for cognitive decline, just making sure you've collected all your financial information. This is really a, a topic I go to in a lot in the estate and incapacity planning chapter, like write up instructions, make sure your partner or your family knows about a life insurance policy that you have, make sure they, they can, you provided enough guidance for them to either take over the finances for you or to otherwise have the contact information about who they should reach out to if it's a financial professional to help facilitate managing that either because you've become incapacitated or, or effectively die as well. Either way, you need to make sure your family knows how to take over for you and to, to be able to operate the finances in the, a manner that's consistent with what you would want and to, to know that they're protected as well because a lot of the financial fraud and elder abuse that can happen is not just if somebody's experiencing cognitive decline themselves and becomes more vulnerable, but at the phase where the control of the finances transitions from someone who was capable of managing it to someone who really isn't capable or doesn't understand these financial considerations. And then with that happening much later in life as well, they may be experiencing cognitive decline on top of that general lack of the, the financial literacy or other matters <laughs> that would help with managing finances. Uh, now, you've also been studying uh, retirement uh, portfolios and investing retirement uh, uh, for many years. Um, is there anything that I guess you've that surprised you or anything that caused you to evolve your viewpoints um, as you've progressed through your career and obviously done a lot of the analysis? 
Well, it's increasingly becoming clear to me that something like the the four percent rule style, what's the safe withdrawal rate? That's a a nice starting point of just understanding that yes, when interest rates are low, you should expect to spend less and so forth. But in practice, no one can use that type of strategy. There's so many complications with this idea that you're always spending the same amount because it's uh, if you're delaying Social Security, that can be a huge one where it's okay to spend more in the f- first few years because you're going to spend so much less later on. And just the taxes, even if you're spending the same amount every year, net of tax, your taxes are not going to be constant every year. And so including taxes, you've got spending that's jumping around all over the place. And, and so just recognizing that's where I think the funded ratio can be helpful because it's easier to build in the specific cash flows that can be quite volatile and to just see if you have a sustainable plan rather than trying to start from the position of, okay, this year, uh, 3% is what I'm spending. And so does that align with a safe withdrawal rate? Well, it's it's really hard to project that out when your spending is not going to follow the assumptions that everything is growing in constant inflation adjusted terms. So I, I think that's, that's a big one. And can really speak towards, again, <laughs> I like the funded ratio concept more so than some of the either just what's the safe withdrawal rate or just doing a Monte Carlo based financial plan to look at a probability of success. Because the, the funded ratio lets you decide an investment return that you're comfortable with. And there will be a probability of success associated with that, but it's something that's kind of behind the scenes and would need to be reverse engineered versus the more typical financial planning approach is run a Monte Carlo based financial plan, get a probability of success where there will be a fixed rate of return associated with that probability of success. But but that's the thing that's behind the scenes and would have to be reverse engineered. And I think it's easier for people to to just think about what do I view as a, a reasonable investment return versus why do I have to make this decision about what's the safe withdrawal rate, which every any safe withdrawal rate uh, is connected to a fixed rate of return assumption. But I think it's easier to think in terms of the fixed rate of return assumption. Like the 4% rule is connected to a 1.3% compounded real investment return. A 3% rule is, uh, if you're, because this is assuming a 30-year retirement, it's connected to a 0% real rate of return assumption. So if you're making a funded ratio plan with a 0% real rate of return assumption, behind the scenes, you could say that's equivalent to a 3% rule, but you're doing, you're so much more sophisticated than that because you have your actual spending patterns, cash flows, uh, social security income and everything else fully incorporated into that analysis. So that's uh, what surprises me the most because I got my start talking about withdrawal rates is mm-hmm. I think that's really it's, it's not that it's not important at all, but it's just not really a very good way of thinking about the general retirement problem that you're trying to solve at the end of the day. Interesting. Um, and finally, just about annuities. Um, and I know you've, you've written about annuities um, and there's a, obviously economists uh, have a you know big argument for including them uh, uh, for, uh, for basically uh, protecting your cash flows, uh, but there's obviously concerns about buying them in a rising interest rate. So if, if someone's concerned about the Fed raising rates, uh, perhaps three times, um, and perhaps more going into 2024, 2023, 2024, um, should they consider staggering purchases or what, I guess, what guidance could you give to them about uh, the timing of buying an annuity? 
Yeah, yeah. So there's different retirement income styles. And so some people are just pure total returns investors, some are like time segmentation. But then income protection and risk wrap are both styles where you might feel more comfortable having an income floor with annuities. And then that can give you the capacity to then feel more comfortable investing for more discretionary types of goals. And we've been this kind of argument that interest rates are about to go up has been with us since at least 2013. I know people were saying that and we're still waiting for that to happen. But it gets into this kind of discussion that, well, you don't want to get an annuity if interest rates are going to go up. But if you're already at retirement, really in a low interest rate environment, the case for annuities is stronger on a relative basis, not on an absolute basis. It's just when interest rates are low, everything is more expensive. But the trouble is the cost of funding retirement with bonds and then potentially with investments grows faster than the cost of funding retirement with annuities because annuities have this longevity credit, the, the subsidies from the short-lived to the long-lived that aren't really impacted by interest rates. And so if you were sure interest rates were about to go up, it would probably speak to just holding cash, waiting for the interest rates to go up and then buying the annuity. But with the reality of that's not a certainty and we don't know what's going to happen and you're already retired, then you get into this issue of, I have to continue to spend to meet my expenses. And then what am I going to do if I'm holding longer? Like I can have capital losses on my bond funds. If interest rates go up and I've been spending and then I have to sell my bonds for less because of a capital loss on their value, then even though the payout rate on the annuity may be higher in the future because interest rates went up, I'm now applying a lower remaining account balance against that payout rate. I'm not necessarily better off by waiting. So in practical terms, yeah, what you suggested may make a lot of sense, which is to help manage some of the interest rate risk. You don't make the whole annuity purchase at the start, but you could stagger that in over time, have different interest rate environments that you're exposed to. And that can be a practical way to deal with it. And that would be better than I think just well, I'm sure interest rates are going to go up. And so I'm just going to wait to buy the annuity. I don't think that sort of strategy works as well as people may have in mind if they're already at retirement. If you're pre-retirement, you can wait. <laughs> but if you're already in retirement and spending, the, the case for waiting becomes a lot more complicated. Okay. Great. Thanks for your time, Wayne. I appreciate it. Sure. My pleasure. Hello, Matt. Thanks for making time to chat with me about your article in the March AAII Journal, understanding bond yields, as well as the benefits and risks of intermediate bond funds. Thanks for having me again. And um, so I'm going to delve right in. I, my first question is focused on understanding what intermediate bonds funds are. And uh, just give us a little bit of background on the details and um, how, what investors uh, can expect. Uh, yeah, so a, a bond fund itself uh, is just, just a pool, uh, pooled investment vehicle. Primarily invested in bonds. Um, typically, the primary goal of a bond fund is generating uh, monthly income. Um, unlike uh, common stock, so equity, um, debt securities like a bond, um, they have limited lives and they have a maturity date. Uh, and so, what 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 happens is this. Uh, at that maturity date, the, the, the investment vehicle ceases to exist. Um, so you have different bonds with different um, time periods. Uh, that, so you have different maturity time periods. 
uh, typically short, intermediate, and long. Um, so some bond funds, they seek to mimic the broad market, um, investing in both short and long-term um, uh, bonds. Um, that could also just be from a variety of issuers, um, US governments, government agencies, um, state and local, uh, even corporations. Um, and then some other uh, funds uh, focus uh, on a narrower mix, so just short-term or just long-term. Um, specifically, intermediate bond funds, um, they offer a, a greater yield typically than uh, short-term uh, bonds. Um, the longer, uh, in this case, it, it's, it has to do with the, the length. Uh, for holding a bond longer, uh, the investor expects a, a higher compensation and interest paid back. Um, but an intermediate fund, uh, bond has uh, lower risk than a long-term bond um, from that same principle. Uh, you know, the, the longer a bond exists, there's just more risk that you might not get it back. So the intermediate bond funds are just kind of hit that middle ground between um, short-term and the, the long-term. And when, you know, when it comes to investing, um, you spoke, you, you spoke a little bit about bond yields. How are those calculated? Yeah. So, um, the yield is basically the, the stream of income, um, that, a, a bond provides. There's a couple of different, uh, ways of, of denoting it. Um, so there, there's coupon yield and the coupon yield is, what I just called the, the interest rate. So it's just the, the set rate at which the bond will make um, payments to you uh, or the fund, uh, whoever is owning it. Um, so if you have a, um, say you have a, a, a bond that's priced at $2,000 um, and it has a 10% coupon, um, you're gonna be receiving probably Typically, it's semi-annual payments, but you'll be receiving 10% of uh, that bond's uh, par value, uh, that $2,000, um, on an uh, annual basis. Um, so altogether, uh, a lifetime of a coupon yield, um, that's going to be the bond's simple interest. And that's just the total of the interest payments you receive. Um, probably what investors are more familiar with conceptually is a what's called the current yield uh, and that is the annual coupon divided by the bonds current market price um, bonds do have there's a secondary market for bonds and they do uh, trade um, and occasionally their price um, because the, the coupon rate or the interest rate cannot change um, what affects the yield um, is the movement of the market price of the bond um, so this is where you get premiums and discounts um, so if you had uh, you know three bonds that each had a par value of a thousand dollars and each had a coupon of ten dollars uh, they'd each give you a hundred dollars in annual payments um, but if you paid uh, twelve hundred dollars for a bond your yield would only be uh, about eight percent uh, maybe 8.3, I think. Um, so there you're seeing um, how uh, the yield of a bond will, will change um, based on its price. 
So what are the benefits of investing in bond funds versus in, uh, investing in specific individual bonds themselves? Yeah, so the really the best benefit to investing in bond funds is coming down to your individual desire to um, research and then maintain a portfolio. Um, you know, a cheap ETF, uh, their management is going to provide you exactly the type of uh, bond uh, that matches your objective um, for your portfolio. Um, and you won't have to worry about um, one, buying bonds individually, but then two, tracking their maturity dates. Um, a fund will maintain a constant maturity. Um, so to maintain its objective, it'll, it'll continually uh, buy and sell bonds um, to maintain uh, that either long-term, short-term, uh, or intermediate uh, category-based um, maturity. Uh, so if, just from a simplicity standpoint, uh, the funds are easier and relatively cheap now uh, for accessing bonds. Makes sense. And similar to when you're looking at, you know, individual securities versus, you know, mutual funds and ETFs. Exactly. And um, so, you know, during inflation, you know, it's pretty common knowledge that bonds don't, you know, perform as well as securities do. Um, so can you give us a little bit of background why this happens? Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty basic. It has to do with interest rates. Okay, so uh, bond, bonds are directly uh, related to interest rates. Um, a strong market for bonds is one in which interest rates uh, are, are declining. Um, you know, that causes bond prices to go up because uh, investors are more willing to pay for a bond with a higher interest rate. Um, so a weak bond market is one in which interest rates are going uh, up and that causes the prices to go down. Um, so what happens is during inflation, um, you have uh, the federal government will raise interest rates to slow economic growth. Uh, and because those interest rates are, are, are going up, uh, that creates uh, a weak bond market. Makes sense. And for, <laughs> you know, despite inflation, uh, does AEII recommend investors uh, diversify their portfolios with bonds? And then how much is the right amount, um, especially for those who are retired? Yeah, so bonds are present uh, in all three of our asset allocations. Um, you know, there are some investors that think uh, you don't need a bond allocation, um, but but what, what bonds do is they provide uh, regular income and you know, they also tend to be less volatile. So you're getting potential uh, income and the potential for less volatility um, across the asset allocation models. 10% um, of the aggressive portfolio is in intermediate bonds, 40% um, of the moderate portfolio is in bonds, and then 60% uh, of our conservative portfolio is in bonds. And that conservative portfolio uh, represents our invest investors that are closest to reaching their retirement age. Um, it's pretty common that as time, um, as time to retirement approaches, uh, investors often adjust their asset allocation strategy um, towards bonds to preserve their wealth. Um, because again, it provides income and the potential for less uh, volatility. Excellent. And um, so, when we talk about market turmoil, because you know we have you know, we're going through quite a few different you know unprecedented events um, with you know rising gas prices and inflation and 
um, you know, tensions on the Ukrainian-Russian border and just so many things throwing at us, you know, COVID in the background. Um, so do bonds, so do bonds perform well during market turmoil? And are these a good investment for, in, in, you know, individuals who are looking to kind of safeguard their portfolios? You know, different types of bonds, um, you know, just like stocks will perform differently. Um, you know, specifically, as I said, bonds are tied to interest rates. Um, so that's your number one risk. Um, but, you know, bonds follow different strategies. Um, so, the, you know, especially when you're looking at bond funds, the basics of evaluating a fund still applies. You want, uh, you know, better than category average returns um, and then lower uh, expense ratios. Um, and then you want to pay attention to the, the index that are being tracked. And then uh, talking about market, market turmoil, uh, their risk index scores. So uh, what is the volatility of the index and how are they doing uh, relatively to that? Um, you know, a high risk score is going to imply that the fund is taking on more credit risk um, and holding bonds that have a greater interest rate sensitivity. So if the, you know, the market's in turmoil and interest rates are uh, more volatile, your more higher risk bond funds, um, you know, they're going to be more volatile as well. Um, you know, in general, um, you have the time to ride out a bond market's ups and downs uh, or just a market's ups and downs. Um, you can definitely potentially get greater rewards from intermediate or longer term bond funds um, or even exposure to some higher yielding, lower quality bonds. Um, you know, in, in terms of favoring growth of capital, um, which probably a strategy with bonds better pursued during market volatility because um, we're talking about changes in price there. Um, you know, a more aggress aggressive bond fund um, is going to offer a higher total return, um, but it's going to come with greater risk, right? Um, you know, in a long-term bond fund or a, a multi-sector bond fund, um, if you're looking for something more aggressive um, that has high yield, um, is definitely a consideration uh, for uh, a higher risk aggressive bond fund. And, you know, as we look at our website, um, does AI have resources to help investors find bonds as well as bond funds? Yeah, so first uh, I would check out our fund evaluator pages. Um, to do that, you know, you just type the name or ticker uh, into the search box. Uh, either the fund or ETF you're looking for. Um, and then our A-plus uh, investor subscribers have access to our fund and ETF screeners. Um, those will allow you to, um, you know, basically screen funds, our universe of funds, the same way I do for these articles. Um, and then on the individual fund and ETF pages, um, there are pretty useful tables that highlight uh, manager changes, uh, performance, uh, performance benchmarks, um, you know, consistent, uh, consistently performing funds, and also just top and bottom. Um, and also you can uh, access our annual ETF and um, mutual fund guides um, under the journals guide section. Well, and those are great resources. And uh, yeah, thank you so much, Matt. I really appreciate, uh, you know, going into bond yields, bond funds, and giving us a little bit more information on the benefits and risks of both. 
Oh, thanks, Jen. And if, for our members, if you'd like to check out the latest issue of the AAII Journal, uh, which is our March 2022 um, issue, visit slash journal. And I'd like to thank you again, and uh, I hope you have a great rest of your evening. And now for a message from our friends at Discover Bank. We know as individuals interested in building investor wealth, you never want your money to be idle. Even small dollar amounts for short amounts of time should be working for you. With that, we're pleased to share information from our partner Discover Bank on deposit accounts that keep your money moving. You can choose from several options to help you meet your short-term or long-term financial goals. The best part? All of the deposit accounts offer preferred member rates. Take a look. With Discover, you can earn over five times more interest than the national savings average with preferred member rates and pay no fees. That's no fees, period. Plus, no minimum balance is required. You can access your AAII member savings account with Discover Bank from your smartphone or tablet, so it's easy to keep your money moving in the right direction. Open an AAII online savings account to start saving for the future today. Visit aaii.discoverbank.com to learn more. We hope you enjoyed tonight's broadcast. I want to thank Charles Rotblood, Wade Fow, and Matt Bajkowski for taking the time to discuss some important topics about retirement. We know managing your retirement portfolio can be a challenge, so I'm glad we were able to cover a few specific topics about intermediate bonds and protecting portfolio assets. As always, please remember to click the subscribe button if you'd like to be alerted of future II shows. You can always catch a replay of tonight's event on our YouTube channel and make sure to register for upcoming AAII events and webinars by visiting aaii.com webinars. And if you're an investor on the go and want to catch the II show while driving or going for your daily walk, you can now follow us on Spotify, Amazon Music, and Audible. Also, you can view both Wade's and Matt's articles in the March issue of the AAII Journal by visiting aaii.com journal. And with that, we wish all of you viewing good health, good fortune, and a great evening. Thank you and happy investing.